to the Celtics Pride Podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Motenko. With me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. That's right. I just got done watching some Kara Lawson highlights. Let's do this. Ooh, what did you see, Josh? As a player or as a coach? <laughs> uh, as a player. I haven't watched any coaching highlights yet. Um, she uh, was you know, a strong-bodied point guard who made good decisions, played really fundamentally sound, could hit some shots and run the team. Um, she's in one of those like that. You think she's a free yeah. agent? Well, but she, she's a smaller point guard. So I don't know if we want that. I wanted to see the, uh, coaching highlight montage for Josh Motenko. Does that exist on YouTube? Right. Lots of like finger pointing and hands yeah. on the hips, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Straightening of a tie, shaking yeah. of a head. Just a little, yep. Small movements. That, tell that other voice you heard is Mike Minkoff as always. How's it going, Mike? Good. I, uh, you know, just re resubmitted my applications to uh, Brad Stevens for those front office positions that I think he's looking to fill. For some reason, I haven't heard back yet. Uh, after you my didn't get back to last yet? week, not yet. No, I, I assume he just it just got lost in the mail. Yeah, it's coming. It's forthcoming. He's going to interview everybody. Uh, we'll talk a little more today on uh, the coaching and front office decisions that the Celtics have upcoming. We're going to spend a good chunk of time talking about what I'm calling the Kemba Walker dilemma. Uh, I did a little research and want to share with you guys and talk through this small point guard regression, uh, especially as they age thing. Uh, but first, let's talk about the only real Celtics news right now, which isn't even Celtics news. It's that Marcus Smart is not in the all-NBA team. No, all Mike, defense, who? all defense team. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No, Mike, I'm who? pretty confident he's also <laughs> not in the all-NBA team. <laughs> As expected. Mike, who made the all-defensive team? Um, well, so there are two all-defense teams, a first team and a second team. Uh, the guards that made the first team are Ben Simmons and Drew Holiday. Hard to argue with those selections. Guards that made the second team are Jimmy Butler and Matisse Teibel. Hard to argue with those selections. Marcus Smart, you know, managed an injury. He was sixth overall amongst guards. Mikhail Bridges was the fifth guard ahead of him. You know, Smart had a major calf injury for much of the season. He did not play up to his uh, previously established elite defensive level for most of the season. So I'm not particularly surprised that he did not make uh, the all either all-defense team. Uh, you know, the other players that made the team, Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green, and Giannis rounded out the first team. Bam Adebayo, Joel, Joel Embiid, and Kawhi Leonard rounded out the second team. So I'm, I'm shaking my head at the Matisse Tybel decision, not because he shouldn't have made it, but because he should be a Celtic. <laughs> I, if I if I remember correctly, we traded him for Grant Williams and Carson Edwards. Those picks. We don't talk about that trade. We just pretend <laughs> it never happened. They should fire Danny Age. Okay. Wait a minute. So there's there's an issue here, right? I mean, other people in the media have talked about how Marcus Smart has lost a step. Do you believe this or not? I don't know if that's true. I, it's it's again, it's hard to evaluate this year because it's been so weird. Yeah, this this is where I'm accept Adam saying that. Like, I disagree when you talk about the overall ceiling of the team. Um, I think I think we know enough about this team and the competition in the East to say whether or not this team will be a championship level team next season, absent some you know real significant changes to the roster. But when it comes to Marcus Smart. You know, he suffered an injury. He looked like he might not have been in the best shape of his career. Um, you know, he talked about having some, you know, 
losses in his inner circle, like four or five people he was close to that passed away from COVID over the course of the season. Like he gets, you know, that's where I'll fully accept and and embrace being like this season was a weird one. Um, And, and not write off Marcus Smart's, you know, and say he's like past his prime as a defender. He's what, 26, 27. Like he's very much in his athletic prime still. So I'm not, I'm not particularly, I'm not overly worried about that. Yeah. I don't feel like he's lost a step. I, you know, if anything, like the Drew Holiday thing, he's the one defender I feel like I compare Marcus Smart to the most because they're both so physical, but they can guard the quicker players too. I don't feel like Marcus Smart can't guard the quickest guards in the NBA anymore. And you see what P.J. Tucker has done to Kevin Durant here in the playoffs, locking him up with the kind of physicality that like possibly should be called a foul. And Marcus Smart has that kind of a, a defensive potential, um, maybe more of the Jimmy Butler type too. But, you know, Guys like Matisse Thibel and Ben Simmons, they can do things that Marcus Smart just can't do. So I get that. And obviously you got to give the Suns some credit for the year that they've had. And Mikhail Bridges was a huge part of that. But I, I'm not worried about Smart at all. I, I'm, I, I'm shocked every time I hear people in the media talk about it because, you know, this year was what it was. But I feel like I'm, you know, the eye test seems less affected to me. Like I can see how hard he's playing defensively. I can see his positioning defensively. I can see how he bothers people and gets in their head still. So I'm like, where has he lost a step? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's hard to evaluate. Like the Celtics defense on a whole was just bad this year, certainly relative to past seasons. And part of that was like the team collectively um, being effective and like getting out and challenging three point shooters. Um, you know, that's a team. The Celtics as a team have historically kind of defied statistical precedent and been an above average team at defending three point shooting under Brad Stevens. And they were just bad at defending the three pointer this year. Um, and while under normal circumstances, that would seem like just a regression to the mean, um, given the, the emphasis Stevens has traditionally put on on getting out and challenging shooters. Keith Smith had an amazing article about kind of the Celtics philosophy on challenging three pointers. I think it was two seasons ago now on Celtics blog um, that talked about how they they jump and contest with while making sure not to foul. Whereas most te- most teams just kind of get out but stop short of jumping. Um, and the team yeah. as a whole just didn't kind of have that extra oomph in its effort on a consistent basis to, to effectively challenge. I just, I think Marcus smart wears, wears the kind of reputational tarnish of the team defense as a like stalwart defensive player from the team. So it's a little hard, I think to separate the team's lackluster performance with, you know, individual deficiencies, at least for me. But I didn't think Marcus smart was as effective defensively this season as he has been in the past. He wasn't like terrible, you know, he still was the sixth highest rated guard in the NBA, so people still think highly of his defense, but he wasn't a sure thing first team all defensive player this year, I think. So I'm not again, I'm not I'm not surprised by the results. I can't argue with like Ben Simmons and Drew Holiday being above him. Marcus Smart has uh, regularly been named as uh, the player with the most value that the Celtics could be likely to trade this offseason. I would love to see him stick around. As I've mentioned, I, I want this team to get grittier, not less gritty. If you take Marcus Smart off this team, that's a problem to me. 
uh, he embodies this this Celtics team, and he brings something that Josh was saying that that PJ Tucker physicality, aggressiveness that this team sorely lacks and needs more of. Um, I I would love to see him play more point guard. Uh, he is this this offseason is interesting for for him. He's got one year left on his contract. I believe he's uh, extension eligible. So. Um, It'll be and there's going to be more teams out there with cap space next year than than this year. So it'll be interesting to see with Marcus Smart. Similarly with Robert Williams, what the Celtics decide to do related to extensions this offseason. Kemba Walker has been the biggest name and will continue to be the biggest name on the Celtics regarding offseason moves. Uh, there is a consensus that amongst fans and media that the Celtics should try and move off of his his contract. That his production has diminished. That um, that it's t- going to be hard to trade his contract. That he's going to need. We're going to need to throw in a first round draft pick or more, depending on the deal and what we're getting back. And likely, we're not going to be able to get the value that a lot of fans want. And I, uh, if that were to happen, I think Marcus Smart would take on a lot more of the point guard duties, which I'm fine with. Marcus is a, a phenomenal passer, and I prefer him in as a point guard than as uh, playing off the ball, taking more shots. Um, but let's talk about Kemba. Uh, so Danny Ainge has loved small, gritty point guards, whether it's Marcus Banks uh, or or Peyton Pritchard. Kemba obviously is a lot more talented. I think that move was a good move at the time. Um, even though at the time I was concerned, Kemba Walker was 28 coming, coming off of his year 28 season. Um, he's now going into his year 31 season. Obviously, he's got two more years left, the player option on the second year. Uh, which he's very likely to exercise. Um, the injury uh, history, Kemba was was uh, extremely durable in Charlotte. Uh, he he played most games. Uh, the last four years, he averaged uh, 80 games a year, uh, just above that, actually. And his games played are way down to 56 uh, out of 72 last year, 43 out of 72 this year. Uh, all of that has been well-documented. And what I wanted to to ask you guys is uh, um, I've had this hypothesis that small point guards, uh, once they, they start to age, once they get into their early thirties, they regress really quickly and faster, more dramatically than other uh, sized players. Um, so I, I first want to ask you guys, what are your thoughts on that hypothesis? Uh, Mike, maybe can you go first and then let's hear from Josh. Yeah. Well, before I, I answer, I mean, I've got an answer, but, what how are you defining small like what what is is there a cutoff here for small six, six two or below six but two or below. but it's okay. a little it's a little nebulous because six two now is different than six two a couple of years ago when they were measuring with shoes and everybody had different measurements so and are, are we assuming kind of six two and and slight versus six two like are we yes. not are we tre- we're not treating kemba and fred van vliet the same are we uh, I mean, I actually think of Van Vliet as more of a, a small two guard, but yeah, I, I mean, we can think of them differently. Okay. Um, so I, I think, I mean, I don't remember if it was Kevin Pelton or someone of that ilk, um, a statistically oriented uh, NBA analyst a, a, a few years ago, I'm pretty sure did uh, a look at this. I don't remember the exact, exact study or, or uh, article. Um, but I'm fairly certain it's pretty well chronicled that small point guards have a pretty precipitous, precipitous drop-off as they get to their late twenties, early thirties. 
whereas by contrast, larger point guards, and again, look at someone like Chauncey Billups, look at someone like Kyle Lowry, who is, I don't think he's 6'2", but he's not as slight as someone like Kemba, um, historically get, they're like fine wines. They get better with age. Uh, I am curious where Chris Paul falls in, in this measurement and, and size rating, but Chris Paul is also one of the all-time, all-time, all-time great point guards uh, to ever play, so he might just be an outlier regardless. Anyway, that's a really long way of saying I think your hypothesis is right on, and I'm pretty sure it's been written about before, that small point guards drop off pretty precipitously in the, in their early 30s. Josh, do you want to hear the, the Kevin Pelton research, or do you want to give your thoughts first? Um, well, I want to give you credit, Adam. This is something that you've been talking about for a long time, for a decade or so or more. And, you know, I feel like this is now kind of common knowledge. Like, I think it's, it's something that I've heard over and over again in media with stats that back it up. And it's something I've heard in coaching circles as well that, um, and just from my own experience watching smaller point guards, they don't get the same calls under the rim. They get, you know, they have harder falls because, you know, they're, they're, the impact is different with someone of that body size. So, um, I, yeah, you've been on this for a while and you need the credit. So I, I've got this hypothesis. Uh, I think I was feeling the exact same that you guys were. I was thinking about Isaiah Thomas of the Celtics and, and that massive regression. I was thinking about uh, the previous Isaiah Thomas, Thomas of the Pistons, who retired at age 32. I was looking at Allen Iverson's uh, uh, career stats. He didn't retire till he was 34 or 35, but he regressed dramatically at 32. Chris Paul started regressing uh, at 32 years old, but that also coincided with his move to Houston. So that may have been a part of the dynamic there between those players. I know that it was a couple of years after that, that he changed to a plant-based diet and that um, he got a, had a little resurgence there. Um, so that team changed. I mean, we know that teams can change a lot around statistics. Steph Curry had a, um, a slow incline, which I'll come back to. Um, he, he he's six three though, isn't he? He's he actually is, bigger he's than slight. people think. Yeah, he. But he's, I've re, I've read that he's like one of those like freakishly deceptively strong people. Mm. Like he looks slight, but he will outlift people that look bigger than him. Mm. Like um, I'll I'll see if I can find it. But I, I I've read anyway. But he but he is he's big by the definition we've used here. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to include him, he had a slow incline in terms of he, he developed his skill and his stats improved year over year. His first few years in the league, it, they peaked at 27. And he did have some ankle injuries, but it really only took him out of games during a season, his age 23 season. He then started getting more injuries or missing games as a result of injuries at age 29. So age 21 to 29, uh, he had large gameplay st statistics. The last four years, he has not played high numbers. He's missed even this year, which was a phenomenal year for him. He missed 10 games this season. So, I mean, these are the best, most talented, dynamic point guards of the last 30 to 40 years. I mentioned last time I was concerned about Dame Lillard's uh, contract because, because of age. Uh, we, we can come back to that, too. So I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for this. Um, the eye test certainly supports this. Uh, Mike, I'm not sure. I found some Kevin Pelton research. Uh, I'm not sure if this was the article or what I found was actually a response, a blog response to from 2017 to a Celtics fan asking about 
whether small point guards regress more quickly than uh, it, that bigger... may that may have been it. I, I honestly yeah. don't remember the source, but it was a, a few. It was a handful of years ago. This is back in 2017 when Isaiah Thomas. This is before I the the Isaiah Thomas uh, trade for Kyrie Irving. Um, and what Pelton found was that larger guards take longer to develop. Uh, they have a slower increase. They peak uh, around 30 years old. Um, and his his definition of larger was six two or or bigger. Um, and then he had a six one or smaller group. And those the six one or smaller the small guard group they came into the league at sort of their peak level almost um, and, and had a peak at 26. And then they had two declines, one at 26 to 30, and then another much larger one, 30 to 34. So um, both groups started that, to decline. That was the smaller group? That's yeah, for smaller, yeah. For smaller. So both groups declined, had a decline at 30 to 32. And then at 32 to 33, the small guards decreased dramatically and are almost unplayable after that. But his sample size was 10 players for 6'2 or larger and 11 players for 6'1 or, or smaller. Yeah, so you take that with a grain, take that with a grain of salt. I, I feel like from experience, there's definitely a difference between you know, how the impact is around the rim, the types of calls that they get, and the regression in their career when you're looking at even like a 5'11 to 6'1 like thicker guard compared to someone like Kemba Walker who, let's be honest, he's 5'11", right? He's not much taller than that. Guys like him and IT, they're in that really small category because they're both slight and short. And to me, that's a whole different thing. The only other thing I think that like would, would be evidence against this whole theory is the diets nowadays and the performance techniques and all the science behind everything that the NBA players are doing, um, especially with the staff that they have hired on their own or who the, the team is paying the salaries of for them to have personal one-on-one advice from, you know, these guys are, are extending their careers. And so that's the only shot I feel like Kemba has in this day and age to, to prove us all wrong. So my, I mean, I, I think it, it might even be simpler than about the type of calls they get or the type of hits they take. I mean, with it, it was, it was in fact the like hits he took and the damage he took to his hip. I just think it's a function and the, of... And of, the torque. Well, right. That's where I was going. So it's the smaller guys rely more on, on just elite, elite, elite athleticism. And that just right. declines when you start getting into your late 20s, right? And, and like someone like IT had to be transcendentally athletic and twitchy. And like he was a crazy good jumper for his size. And he had to be able to have the hang time and explosiveness to get past people and stay in the air long enough to be able to finish on like the other side of the rim and do all his crafty finishes. Kemba has had to have the speed to just explode and burst past people. And then the strength and torque, like you're saying to kind of stop on a dime and pull up for that jump shot. And I think, you know, that just, that becomes less and less reliable as you get to your late twenties, early thirties. And then even more so as you get from your late thirties to mid thirties. And I, I, to me, that's like, the evidence from Kevin Pelton is reinforcing what seems like a logical kind of hypothesis to have on its face regardless. So it, it makes it easy to uh, subscribe to it, even though the sample size is small with larger point guards. And, you know, I think again, like a Chauncey Billups or 
a Kyle Lowry, that guys that have kind of more heft and more size, that are, they're not relying as much on explosive athleticism. And so as they get later into their careers, they're cultivating the craft, they're better understanding passing angles, body angles, positioning, ways to position their teammates uh, to create the passing lanes. You know, they're, they're honing their skill as mid-range shooters or outside shooters. And so they get to the sweet spot where they've kind of been able to put together um, their craft and also have kind of a body where that they can use to their advantage to let you know to create certain space and 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 uh, maneuver on the court um and then eventually you know they still lose pace to the point where they get some diminishing returns um that it's that reality for me that you know has made me a is why i kind of had questions about the Kemba trade when it happened i thought we had gordon hayward at the time and i thought he could have been our primary ball handler and Marcus Smart could have started as our point guard at the time. It's what makes me, you know, it's one of the things I think Marcus Smart most has his in his favor as becoming a point guard at this point in his career. And I think probably would have benefited from it a year or two sooner, even though it would have been a struggle for him a couple of years ago. But I think we'd be seeing some of the rewards from that now if we had gone that direction. So none of this is a surprise to me probably in part because I read that article and I think it locked in my brain a long time mm-hmm. ago, but this is how I've been thinking about it for a while. And let, let's compare those two players, IT and Kemba Walker in terms of their game, like their go-to moves. Like what do they rely on? What was IT's go-to move? Uh, pull, pull, up pull up three, three or, or kind of just exploding to the hoop and getting dribble guys. Yeah. So, so his move, his dribble move from behind the three-point line, you know, whether a ball screen was there or not, was he would do the fake spin move. He'd put his back to the basket and kind of load up and then push off that one hip to then explode. Or like a fake so like was, pullback dribble or something and then explode exactly, forward. Yeah. Exactly. So he would be pausing and kind of cradling and slowing down into like a loaded, super loaded explosion. And that's how he would get by people. Um, and then in the lane, he was trying to jump into people and trying to get the foul and bounce off of people. Um, and Kemba's game is a little bit different. Like Kemba has a little bit more shake. It's more reliant on his handle. Um, he's got a little bit more of a street ball game. And so his move is like trying to get someone going, get the defender going and then stopping on a dime. And there's a little bit less, uh, load going on with that to get to a pull up jump shot. And it just means that he's going to have more trouble finishing around the rim, which I think we've already started to see in his game. We've definitely Um, already started to see that. Yeah, for sure. We should look. Yeah, we should look to see if the the numbers and you know the the field goal percentage around the rim or number of shots at a certain feet from the hoop have declined um, to back that up or not. But I mean, that's that maybe is something in Kemba Walker's favor. Just when you compare those two types of players and the type of load that they put on their body uh, or the type of game that they have, you know. Maybe Kemba can extend his game just by shooting threes if he can up his percentage um, and be and be elite at that. Like that's what he's missing right now as his rim attempts uh, decline. I would assume. Kemba also puts his body on the line playing defense. He's regularly yeah. top five in the league and charges taken. He was tied for first in the league this year, um, so he does not shy away from contact, and and that has an impact on on one's body. However, I've been leading you guys on here. When you uh, there there is a, a a decent amount of poorly done research on this topic that that shows that small players regress more quickly uh, or get injured faster or things like that. There's l- very low sample size research, like Kevin Pelton's article, or like oh look at this guy, look at that guy type stuff. 
and it fits with anecdotal results. But if you actually look, take an academic approach, uh, look at all of the statistics, I, I, there's multiple phenomenal academic articles looking at aging curves of NBA players generally and looking at and including uh, comparing different positions. Um, and one of the things that it finds is that position doesn't matter. Point guards do not regress more slowly than other positions, which you would assume based on what we, everything we've just talked about would be true. You mean more quickly. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, it, it also, it, it basically debunks this myth that point guards regress more quickly, um, that smaller point guards regress more quickly than larger point guards. Um, how does it, how does it debunk? Can I, sorry, uh, just yeah. a quick question. So, I mean, just because it finds that point guards don't regress more quickly doesn't debunk the myth on its face. You, there are a lot of players at other positions that rely heavily on athleticism that would be subject to the same type of curve. That if you're not controlling for different variables by at each position around size and and body type or body composition, then you're not actually informing this conversation at all, in my opinion. Um, so if, I mean, if there's evidence that specifically debunks this conversation at, you know, small versus large point guards, I'd be interested to hear that. Otherwise, I, I'm, I'm not compelled otherwise. It's not, it is not good enough for Mike, Adam. <laughs> I, not remotely, no. <laughs> um, there's, there is phenomenal research on uh, regression curves for players based on size. Um, and, and it does not show that the smaller the player indicates that they are going to regress more quickly. Um, what it did show is that the larger the incline before the player hits their peak, basically the more the player improves, the more they develop early on in their career, the less quickly they decline after their peak. Kemba Walker uh, improved dramatically year over year his first few years in, in the league. Part of that, a lot of that had to do with him developing an outside shot progressively as, as he entered the league. So from that research, that would suggest that Kemba Walker would actually have a slower decline than, than other players. It also talked about the peak being at 26 or 27 years old and the prime being 24 to 29. I, I feel like I hear all the time people being like, oh, they're entering their prime at 28, 29 year olds years old. No, that's the end of their prime. Prime is 24 to 29. Like Jalen Brown has entered his prime right now. Jason Tatum is about to enter his prime. And when we got Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, they were all post prime at that point. Uh, Kemba Walker is entering 31, his year 31 season. We know that he is already in decline. We can see that his numbers show that. Um, and it's not just about sharing uh, the ball with other all dominant players he also has an injury history so this is where i mean i struggle a little bit with some of this type of statistical analysis on nba players i mean and again this is out of convenience right i, I ascribe to kevin pelton's because it reinforces something i already believe so i acknowledge this up front um <laughs> <laughs> that's called confirmation bias everyone it is but but at the same at the same time um i like no, I don't think Jalen Brown is in his prime yet because I think I think those prime ranges are representative of across the NBA, across a range of different players and personalities. I think for Jalen Brown, he's probably a year or two away from entering his prime. Um, NBA players on aggregate, their prime years might be between 24 and 29. I mean, what does that like? How 
are we saying that primes are five year long periods? It depends. Some players have like a clear like two year peak where they're at the height of their powers and athletic prowess and, and that kind of intersects at a, at a clear cut above. Some players have like a more level prime that lasts five or 10 or some truly like LeBron basically has had like a 15 year prime. Um, so, you know, I, I think some of the statistical generalizations for NBA, which is like a pool of outlier humans um, that are all pretty, whose experiences are all very context dependent um, uh, based on both their abilities, their their age, their um, physical attributes, uh, and the teams and, and kind of teammates that they have, um, makes for a poor kind of longitudinal overarching generalization for some of this stuff, in my, in my opinion. I don't know. I, I'm not clear on why that is, Mike. I'm not clear on why Kemba would be, or Jalen Brown would be an outlier. Like what, why do you get to choose the outliers? These are, these are studies that look at like 400 plus players. I, I think, because I think most, I, I think there, these are generalizable things that are true across all of these players, but are not necessarily super accurate for any of them individually. That is definitely true. That, that's, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So it's like, sure, Jalen Brown. So if you, you can say Jalen Brown's prime is likely to fall within 24 to 29, sure. That's a true thing to say because that's been true for NBA players. But that's different than saying Jalen Brown is 24, therefore he is in his prime. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Sure. And, so you're you saying, can... so, which is, and you said the latter. So that's what I'm disagreeing with. You can't take this generalization and apply it to every player. But if you want to be predictive for any specific player, this data is more predictive than any other set of uh, evaluation. This data is, is, is data. It's a reference point. Yep. It, it's yeah. not... and, and to be clear, the data debunks the, the myth that small players regress more quickly. Uh, I, it, I still I think it, you're it overstating. Improves. I think you're over. I'm not. I think suggesting that the data debunks it is overstating the findings based on how you've characterized them. I disagree. I, and I think that basically what it told me is that my hypothesis was wrong. The hypothesis that the small player, especially small point guards, regress faster. That's just incorrect. Uh, they regress at the same rate as other players. Okay, look, this is about belief. And, and here's an example of this. Okay, I spent two years in a master's program at Fresno State with Dr. Wade Gilbert, who worked with Sven Nader and John Wooden to create his coaching pyramid. All right, and has, is you know, like one of the foremost experts on sports psychology and, and the trends of this kind of a thing. All right, so I worked with him. I did all this research. One of the research that I looked into was the hot hand research, which talks about like being in the zone as a basketball player and, and like going on a run and making shots where you're kind of on fire, right? We all know about this, like players get hot. You may have felt this as a player, as mediocre as, as we all were as players. Like, I bet we all felt hot at one point in our life. Like we couldn't miss, right? All the academic research debunks the hot hand. That's not, as, that's not even true them. anymore though. There's been newer research that calls the earlier findings into question. I think, I think, right, so, I think social science research has needs to be scrutinized extremely, extremely carefully. It, it it has to be done really, 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 really robustly and rigorously for to to be make any sort of causal statements related to its findings. It it relies on a lot of assumptions and holding a lot of things as true 
in very dynamic contexts that oftentimes end up not being as true as the, the study design wants to articulate. I, and I think basketball is a perfect recipe for being very, very difficult to make those type of generalizable findings. Right. So that's, that's what I was trying to say is that you can look at this data and, and, and whether it says the hot hand myth exists or not, you can trust that data. But like when you're dealing with something like basketball, you also have to trust the experts at basketball. And, and at, you know, at some point here, if you're just looking at the science and what the data shows, you're not actually looking at the basketball anymore. You're just looking at the numbers. And the numbers can tell us so much. But we have to always rely on the people who are experts at basketball and, and what, what they see, too. So like what, even when I heard the, the, the hot hand myth was incorrect, I was just like, okay, I'm not trusting the data. Yeah, I know me basketball. neither. I, I was the same way. Exactly. And I've had a hot hand. I was terrible. I am not a good basketball player. Like, I try hard. <laughs> I can sometimes play decent defense, but I've shot really well in, in some pickup games. Uh, that And it was undoubtable that I had the hot hand in that game. People will say that there's not there's no clutch, but any Red Sox fan will tell you David Ortiz was clutch, right? Like, there's there's no question. And wh- whether it's his performance actually increases or other people perform worse in those high-pressure situations, which magnifies his ability, doesn't really matter. Like, he per- he performed at a high level in high-leverage situations, and some people do that, and other people do not. Um, I, Adam, with this data that you're citing, I would want to know... What is the usage rate of the players being looked at? And is that being held steady across all of the players? Like, you know, how important a role did they have? Well, you know, does this hold true across people that had, you know, different expectations for scoring versus playmaking? Um, how about know, height I, I just and think weight? There's, I think there's a lot of variables that are, are not being controlled for that are really important in understanding this paradigm. And so, Adam... Let's turn it back on you. What do you believe about this, about small players? I came in with a very clear hypothesis, and the research has made me rethink that. Um, it's hard to move move on from that idea that small, small point guards are re- going to regress faster and that Kemba Walker is a member of that category, that Dame Lillard is a member of that category. Um, Dame Lillard is at least three inches sixth, taller three. than Kemba Walker. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's hard to move past that, that, that belief. Um, but this, this, just the statistical research, which granted Mike, it does not include, uh, well, it doesn't, there is a, a fair amount that includes height, weight, BMI, et cetera, um, longitudinally over the NBA that's there. And they, others that look at minutes played, uh, usage was not factored in, uh, um, they did use wind shares per and. VORP as their metrics. Um, but uh, it just makes me, it calls into question that hypo- hypothesis. And, and specifically, it makes me think based on what the, one of the research findings that maybe it's weak because of the way that Kemba's career progressed, especially the increase in, in production year over year in his first few years in the league, that that, that may be an indicator that uh, it, it seems pretty obvious to me that he is already in decline, but that maybe that decline is not going to be as fast as I think it's going to be based on how others have developed. Here's where, I mean, here's where I'll, I would reframe the question and kind of, this is what I was getting at in talking about like Jalen Brown at his prime, like whether you believe that data or not, 
I mean, and and ultimately what that boils down to is like, if you if you ascribe to that data as calling into question the the just default hypothesis that small point guards in their early 30s are going to be on a precipitous decline, maybe you say, okay, maybe it's not so precipitous, right? Like otherwise, it's still a decline. It might be gradual in Kemba's case. At the end of the day, the question before you is: We have Kemba Walker who's going into his age 31 season, who has re- a, a history of knee injury that's been more acute in the last couple of seasons. Um, if you're me, you question the wisdom of this of bringing him into the fold in the first place because you're not sure he is elite enough offensively to offset his offensive limitations at a championship level. So like, if you're the GM and you have the decision before you about Kemba Walker specifically... What is your, you know, what what do you think is the right move to make for the Celtics organization? Um, right. You want and and so not? you can take that other data and say whatever you want about it. It's it's a it's a data point. It, it's a a reference point that you can consider. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision specific to Kemba Walker based on who Kemba Walker is. And that's my point about Jalen Brown and like where he yeah. is in his prime, right? And so for me, as someone, you know, I I. I think we want to move away from Kemba Walker, but that's because of how I think about, I, I don't think he's a good enough offensive player to offset his defensive limitations. Um, and I think you, you can build a more effective team for championship contention without him on the roster. Which I completely agree with. And I'm, and one of the things I'm hopeful about uh, with Danny Ainge's retirement is that there will be less of an obsession on small point guards because I think their defensive limitations don't, uh, make it much harder for them to make up for that with offensive production and with Kemba's potential decline, that that is an issue. And and the decision that we're making this offseason is relative to the marketplace. So one of the reasons that I find this interesting is that at this point, everybody's talking about Kemba Walker like he is a completely negative asset that we need to move on from. And, and the value that we have to give up in order to move on from him or the reduced value we need to receive in return, we're measuring that against his potential production. So if the data suggests that maybe his decline isn't going to be this dramatic freefall, or that maybe he could be a relatively productive offensive player, scoring about 20 points a game, dishing five assists, getting to the line three, four times a game, like he's been doing the last year and a half, uh, that's a really good player. That's a fourth best player on a, on a solid team. Uh, th- this is like a, a great sixth man to come off the bench. So if you can keep somebody like that, um, granted his salary is way too high for that, but maybe that's better value than sending away the 16th draft pick in a pretty good draft or uh, giving up that, that production and getting back other bloated contracts uh, for end of the rotation players. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and that's what it comes comes down to. I fully agree, and that's where you know that value, is, right, ends up being in the eye of the beholder. So if you know, to me, if I'm the Celtics GM and I have a mindset of we have to do everything we can to position for a championship in the next one to three years, I'm going to be aggressive in trying to move off of Kemba to create cap flexibility in a way that limits how many assets, if any, that I have to give out. 
Um, but you, you know, you have to find a team that says we're at a place where adding a good player. Cause I think Kemba's good. Like, um, I don't want to kind of misrepresent what I think about him as a player. I just don't think he's quite good enough for the role that he was brought in to play, um, which is not his fault. Like, I think he was brought in to be the Celtics version of what Chris Paul is doing for the Suns, And he's not Chris Paul. Like, and I, I asked on the Celtics slack, um, I don't know, a couple months ago about like, would you rather have Kemba or Kyle Lowry or Chris Paul? And most people thought I was, were, were kind of pro Kemba. Like at the, I was asking it cause I was pretty inclined towards either, uh, Chris Paul or Lowry. I, I, I feel even more firmly in that direction now than I did then. Um, I just, I think Kemba's just a, a cut below for what you need at the most elite levels. So, but then it's like, you know, to me, I, I still think the Knicks could make sense as a team because they could get Kemba. It, it would end up being short years for them. He's a New Yorker and they, you know, they're going to have the calorie space, cap, the salary cap space. They could just absorb him and we could That's take right. back like, I don't know someone like Frank Nelkina or someone that they've given up on basically that has no value in like one year left uh, just to make the deal. And we could throw in some second rounders or a heavily protected first or something. Um, and it, it could end up making sense for both teams, You do, but that's what it boils down to. Like you're saying, Adam, it's, it's that question of value and not just for the Celtics, but also for any potential, you know, trade partner. Looking at the Knicks, Mike, that that's a really interesting team. There's, we're either taking back equal salary uh, or we're trading Kemba to a team like New York or like uh, Oklahoma City for Al Horford uh, where they uh, have cap space and they're basically taking on Kemba Walker as if he's a free agent signing for them. Uh, New York is also a potential team because uh, they did well this year. Um, their, their coach, won, Tom Thibodeau, won coach of the year. Julius Randle's playing great. Uh, they've got a, an owner who's a, a very poor owner who is too involved, uh, makes poor decisions. And uh, that's the kind of situation you want when uh, w- when doing a deal like this. So if they were to strike out on the rest of the free agents and their owner really wanted to improve the team now, then that could be a team. They, they could simply just absorb him into their cap space um, and – I don't even think they'd have to give us anything back. They they only have like six or seven players on contract next season for next season anyway. Yeah, I'd be I, I would love for them to do like a somehow some a, a sign in trade around Nerland's Noel or something, like sign him to two years low low money. Yep, I guess you could do sign in trade easily. Frank Nilakina's his he's expiring this year. Noel is expiring this year. Alfred Payton is expiring this year. Derek Rose is expiring this year. They they have Julius Randall, R.J. Barrett. Obi Toppin, Kevin Knox, uh, and Emmanuel Quickly, Mitchell Robinson, and a couple of other who cares. How sad uh, is it that I don't even want Kevin Knox to come back? Yeah. No. Wait, are you are you saying that they would re-sign like three or four players to one-year deals in order to make a deal for Kemba Walker work, and that we would take on? No, it would be a, No, it would be a a, a sign and trade. Uh, a one for one. I think those are the rules. You have to do one for one in a sign and trade. Um, I could be totally wrong about this. None of those guys, Nerlens Noel or any of those guys, are going to sign for Kemba Walker's equal value salary. No, they don't have have to. to. They don't have to. So the Knicks, once they've renounced, yeah, once they've renounced all of their the rights to their existing free agents, they'll have like 
some in ludicrous amount in, in cap room um, so that they could just absorb Kemba's salary into their cap space without sending back equal value. And it would actually even create a huge trade exception for the Celtics, um, which would mean that the Celtics would have to probably give up uh, more assets to, to make the deal. Well, I got a question for you guys about some other small point guards. There's three on my list of small point guards I wanted to ask you about. Uh, one is Ty Lu. Another one is Jacques Vaughn, former defensive stalwart, small point guard. And the other is Kara Lawson. Do you think that we haven't hired a coach yet because the coach that we're trying to hire is still in the playoffs, like a Jacques Vaughn or a Ty Lue with the Clippers? I think the Celtics are taking their time. I think they're going to interview a lot of different uh, coaching candidates. That is a not uncommon thing for NBA teams to do, partly so that they can learn about – uh, other teams and how they work, how they manage their coaches, systems, things like that. Uh, and then they use that information or they get to know certain coaches and, and and use that information for next year, for three to four years down the line. There might be a coach who needs a little more seasoning that they actually really like, but uh, maybe three, four years from now, if things are not going well, that's somebody that they would look to tap uh, instead of doing it at this point. Um, and I think that so there's value in doing that process. They're still early in, in the, the off season. So you can wait um, and you can uh, see who else becomes available uh, and really do a lot of due diligence. I think they also want to hire, uh, I would hope that they want to hire into the front office as well. I would love to see them get a former player. Uh, I know like Landry Fields' name has been mentioned as a potential for an assistant GM position. I would assume that would be under uh, Mike Zarin. I, I hope that they promote Mike Zarin. I think his current title is assistant GM and it really should be general manager. Um, so I hope that that's something that would happen. Um, it's the kind of thing like, I know Trajan Langdon's name was mentioned a few years ago before he got more experience as a potential uh, general manager, but some a player in the front office, I think would be really helpful. Landry Fields was most recently the assistant general manager of the Atlanta Hawks under Travis Schlenk. So he's had some good experience recently. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Josh, I, I don't know if the reason is because the targets are in the playoffs. My hunch is that, you know, like, I just think this front office keeps things, you know, really, really buttoned up as a general rule. There was a you know a leak to Woj um, sometime last week that that listed kind of a set of candidates that not incidentally they were all you know African American candidates. Um, uh, so I think the team is making it very clear that they're taking uh, diversity seriously into consideration in this hiring as they should, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that is going to be a priority, and I I think most would be more surprised than not uh, if the team somehow did not end up with a, a, a coach that was black or a person of color um, at this point. Um, or a woman. Or, I, yeah. And or, or both, <laughs> like Carol right. Lawson, right? Like, um, all that said, I wouldn't be surprised if the team was like so shockingly close to making their decision already. And just like, I think we'll just, it'll just be announced one day that the Celtics have found their coach without any further word of like interviews or anything like that. Like, I, I don't think we're going to hear, there's not going to be rigmarole beyond that initial blast, like that tweet from Woj. And then I think the Celtics will just announce who they selected for their head coach. 
we will be there to react when things happen. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at Celtics Pride Pod or individually at Mike Minkoff NBA and at Coach Motenko for Josh Motenko. If you've listened to here, you are a part of Celtics Pride.